On this episode of Newt's World, on September 21st, Russia announced it will draft 300,000 reservists to support its military campaign in Ukraine. The announcement was made by Russia's Defense Minister Sergei Shoigu. Shoigu also said that Russia had lost 5,937 Russian soldiers since the beginning of their invasion of Ukraine. Then, President Vladimir Putin, in addition to calling for the first mobilization of troops since World War II, issued a veiled threat. Quote, If the territorial integrity of our country is threatened, we will without doubt use all available means to protect Russia and our people. This is not a bluff, Putin said in a televised address to the nation. So we're entering a very dangerous period. And I really am delighted because to help us understand where we are in the war between Russia and Ukraine, I'm really pleased to welcome my guest, George Beebe, former director of the CIA's Russia program, former advisor to Vice President Cheney, currently the director of Grand Strategy at the Quincy Institute on the ongoing Russia-Ukraine war. George, welcome and thank you for joining me on Newt's World. Great. Thank you for inviting me. Let me start with something I've been surprised by. Do you think that Putin anticipated how difficult the invasion of Ukraine would be? No, I think it's quite clear that he did not anticipate how difficult this has become. And we know that for a very simple reason. Shortly after this invasion began and Russia sent forces airborne troops, armored forces toward the Ukrainian capital, Kiev, many of them were armed with riot control gear. They weren't prepared for meeting a stiff Ukrainian defensive resistance. They thought their biggest challenge was going to be maintaining civic order inside the cities after they controlled them. And that, I think, is an indication of just how badly Putin and his intelligence services misread the kind of war that they were getting into. As you've watched it unfold, has it surprised you how relatively effective the Ukrainians have been and how rapidly they've adapted to new weapon systems? Yes, to some degree it has. I expected that the Russians would win this war decisively and fairly quickly. And the reason why is just a simple numerical comparison between the size of the Ukrainian military and the weapons that it has, the military age personnel that it can draw on to fight, and those of Russia. Russia simply is overwhelmingly larger in its military and in its population. Russia had years of experience militarily fighting in Syria, fighting in Chechnya, fighting in Georgia in 2008. So I didn't expect this was going to be a close contest. One of the things I did not count on was just how far the United States military was willing to go to support the Ukrainians in all of this. And I think that's been quite a decisive factor in how this has played out. The United States has not only been sending weaponry to Ukraine. It's provided the training necessary, the logistics support necessary to keep all this up. It has ex-U.S. military fighting on the ground alongside the Ukrainians. These are volunteers, not official representatives of the U.S. government, but these are quite experienced and effective fighters nonetheless. 
And from what I understand, the United States has had you know, AWACS aircraft that have been patrolling off of Ukrainian airspace and providing what I think has been quite effective intelligence support that has neutralized what would otherwise be Russian air superiority. And without that air superiority, the Russians have not been able to make very fast advances at all in all of this. So I think really the combination of Ukraine's courage in fighting back and American technology and intelligence and military advice has really turned this into a battle that is not what I had expected, I don't think, at the beginning of this war. Yeah, I'm reminded of two different campaigns. One was the Winter War in Finland, where the Russians came in underprepared, undertrained, got beaten very badly, but then regrouped, sent in massively more people, and eventually wore the Finns down. And the other was the British going into the Falklands, where I suspect without our intelligence capabilities, they literally would have been blind and not capable of winning that victory against the Argentinians. What we haven't seen yet, and maybe we're about to with the mobilization that's been announced, but we haven't seen the sort of regrouping for an all-out effort on the part of Russia. We've seen sort of a grinding ineffectiveness. To me, the biggest surprise was the collapse of the Russian logistics system. I mean, they were at one time a very formidable force. And I don't know whether it's the total corruption of the society or what's happened, but were you a little surprised by how badly their logistics system operated? Yes, I have been. And I think Putin was too. And I think that accounts for why he chose to replace the Ministry of Defense official, the general who was in charge of that logistics supply. Clearly, this has not gone well, and Putin believes he's going to have to make a change. So we'll see if new leadership will result in better performance. Now that he's started calling up people into military service, you have mile-long traffic jams at the Russian border crossings. Apparently on the border with Georgia, lines of Russian cars stretch back more than 18 miles. I think Finland has now closed the border because of the sheer flood. And apparently every plane that is leaving Russia is fully booked. I mean, it seems to me that a lot of Russians are voting with their feet and trying to get out rather than get drafted. Do you think that the dissatisfaction with the campaign is significantly deep, or do you think it's only a small minority of the Russians? Well, I think it's very hard to say at this point. My impression over the past several years has been that by far the most dynamic force in Russia politically has been the Russian far-right nationalists. These are people that believe that Putin has been far too soft in dealing with the West and in dealing with Ukraine. They've criticized him for being too willing to try to seek compromise deals with Germany and the United States, for example. They think that he should have taken the gloves off, so to speak, with Ukraine long ago. They believe that he should have recognized the independence of the so-called People's Republics in Ukraine way back in 2014 when they first declared independence. So this, I think, is the largest and most influential faction on the Russian political spectrum right now. Now, clearly, there are what the United States might call pro-Western liberals. My strong impression has been there have not been a lot of them. Many of them have voted with their feet already and left Russia for the West. 
There are ordinary citizens that don't understand the war, don't believe that they ought to be fighting and dying for a cause that they don't understand. I don't think they have strong political views one way or the other, but they do have strong self-preservation <laughs> instincts. And I think they are concerned about the situation that they find themselves in right now. Putin has been reluctant to mobilize in part because he feared that ordinary Russians that are not particularly politically engaged would become alarmed and start to oppose the Kremlin as a result of this. So I do think that this is a sign to some degree of the kind of pressure he feels he's under right now, that he believed he had to take this step. How this plays out over time is anybody's guess. It's very hard to predict at this point. So one of the things that I guess concerns me, because I think it's a logical strategy, but with pretty frightening results, is this whole phony referenda process. I mean, I understand the idea of stuffing ballots, but when you stuff ballots with rifles, it's sort of a pretty open and blatant violation. And both we and the rest of the G7 have condemned it. But it strikes me that in his own mind, Putin is setting up first that they will vote to join Russia, then that he will declare that the Russian border now is these new areas, and that Russian military doctrine does say that they would use nuclear weapons to defend an attack on Russia itself. And so he is potentially setting up a scene in which if Ukraine were to aggressively attack those areas, he could claim that it was an attack on Russia. I mean, is that too far-fetched? How do you read this whole gambit on his part? Well, I think this is a dangerous situation. I think at this point, there's no question that the Russians are going to recognize the results of these referenda. The rest of the world, with vanishingly few exceptions, will not. That is not going to hold Putin back on all of this. I don't know how quickly the Russians are going to recognize the results of these referenda. There may be a window of opportunity between the holding of these votes and actual annexation by the Russian Duma. We will have to see. That said, I'm not sure that Russian nuclear doctrine is quite as clear as you're describing. Certainly, the Russians provide for the use of nuclear weapons if Russia is attacked with nuclear weapons. The other scenario has been that if Russia is attacked with conventional weapons and looks as if its existence as a state is in jeopardy as a result, they also provide for the use of nuclear weapons. My understanding is that doctrinally, they have never said that if you simply attack Russia in any way that they could respond with nuclear weapons. So this is a little bit of an ambiguity. While it is possible that they may respond to an attack on these newly annexed territories with nuclear weapons, I don't think that's a very likely scenario yet. I think Putin would have to believe that Russia was in danger of losing this war altogether before he would resort to nuclear weapons. And they're not there yet. One can imagine that possibility off in the distant future, but it's not an imminent one. One of the things that was interesting to me was that on September 15th, when they met in Central Asia, President Xi was not exactly strongly supportive. And whatever Putin hoped to get out of it, and then apparently Modi from India was aggressively negative about what they were doing. Do you think in that sense that the 
Russian military failure has weakened Putin's relative value as seen by both Xi and by Modi? Well, yeah, I think that's almost inevitable. As you know, political power in the world has both absolute and perceptual components to it. Part of it is what actually can you use that power to do. Part of it is how you're perceived, the image that you have of being powerful. And there's no question that Russia's image of being powerful and influential in the world has taken enormous hits. That's inevitably going to happen when a military campaign of this size and ambition sputters. And it has. The Russians have impressed no one with how effective they've been on the battlefield. And so that inevitably means that Russia is not quite as valuable a partner or an ally as it was prior to this war for places like China and India. You know, the Indians have purchased an enormous amount of Soviet and Russian military weaponry over the years, and they've got to be wondering, you know, gee, does that look particularly effective relative to that equipment of the West right now? I'm curious, do you think, as Xi thinks about Taiwan, that he has to be a little bit skeptical about whether his peacetime military can, in fact, operate the way that they would like to claim they could, just given what he's seen of the gap between Russian pretension and Russian behavior? Well, I don't know. This is a question that a lot of analysts are asking right now, and I'm not sure anyone has a very good answer to this besides speculating. Chinese soldiers are not Russian soldiers. So that comparison depends to a great degree on Xi's assessment of how effective the average Chinese soldier is relative to that of Russia. Part of it is, though, that this war, I think, underscores how difficult it is to go on offense against a prepared and courageous and informed defense, particularly one that is armed with American high-tech weapons. My personal belief is that of all the military operations one can undertake, an amphibious invasion is among the most difficult. We learned that in the U.S. during World War II. It took us a while to master amphibious invasions and get good at it. And even at that, it's an extremely difficult thing to pull off. So I wouldn't imagine that the Chinese are at all complacent about how things might go should they attempt to invade Taiwan. I always remind people that the German army couldn't figure out how to get across 21 miles of English Channel, and Taiwan Straits is about 140 miles. It is a big problem, not a small problem. I'm curious. You know, we keep getting more and more reports of burial sites, of people who are tortured to death, of various atrocities. To what extent do you think once this is over, the world will actually pursue that in the way that we did in the Balkans? And to what extent do you think it will just be sort of brushed over as one of the costs of a war as people try to get back to a more peaceful relationship? Well, I think that depends to a great degree on how this war ends. And anybody that can tell you that they know how this war is going to end is either fooling you or fooling themselves. But Pursuing that kind of investigation and punishment presupposes more or less an unconditional military victory on the part of Ukraine and its Western allies. 
And frankly, I don't think that's a very likely outcome, in part for the reason that you alluded to earlier. The Russians have nuclear weapons, and they're quite frantically signaling that they're willing to use them. Had Hitler or Japan had nuclear weapons in World War II, I think it's highly unlikely that those wars would have ended in unconditional surrender. So I don't think that that outcome is very likely, and as a result, I don't think that pursuing the kinds of investigations and punishments that you're alluding to is a very likely outcome. Hi, this is Newt. We have serious decisions to make about the future of our country. Americans must confront big government socialism, which has taken over the modern Democratic Party big business, news media, entertainment, and academia. My new best-selling book, Defeating Big Government Socialism, Saving America's Future, offers strategies and insights for everyday citizens to save America's future and ensure it remains the greatest nation on earth. Here's a special offer for my podcast listeners. You can order an autographed copy of my new book, Defeating Big Government Socialism, right now at gingrich360.com book, and we'll ship it directly to you. Don't miss out on this special offer. It's only available for a limited time. Go to gingrich360.com book to order your copy now. Order it today at gingrich360.com book. It's interesting to me, you sort of began working as an analyst of the Civil Union at exactly the point when it was just changing dramatically. Let me go all the way back. How did you get intrigued with the Soviet Union, and what was the base of your studies? Well, it's funny. My dad worked for a federal research laboratory, MIT Lincoln Laboratory, when I was a kid. And when I was a teenager, we moved to Kwajalein Atoll in the Marshall Islands, which is the site of some of those amphibious invasions that we had talked about during World War II. And that's a place that the United States Air Force uses as a missile testing range. So we fire missiles, ICBMs, from Vandenberg Air Force Base in California. They land in the lagoon on Kwajalein Atoll. And one of the things that was interesting when I was a kid, the Soviet Union had an intelligence collection ship that would patrol off the shores of the island where I was living to collect telemetry data on these missiles that were coming in. This was one of the provisions of some of the arms control treaties that we had with the Soviet Union. And I would go off fishing and scuba diving and things offshore with my friends, and we would wave to the Soviet collection ship off in the distance, and they would wave back. And I got interested in, you know, what is this whole arms race and Cold War, and what is the Soviet Union all about? So I took some classes in college just out of interest, because this was a very real thing in my life as a teenager. And I sort of eventually accumulated enough classes that I thought, gee, let's pursue it in graduate school. And in grad school, I bumped accidentally into a guy who used to work at CIA who said, hey, you ought to look into this. You know, having no particular idea what else to do with this degree other than go into academia, I thought, gee, that might be an interesting thing to look into. And it all sort of unfolded without any particular plan on my part. So you end up studying the Soviet Union 
just at the point where it's about to cease being the Soviet Union. I mean, in a way, that must have been a very exhilarating period of waking up every day wondering what was going to happen next. Well, it was. Quite honestly, what happened over the course of my career, I started at the CIA in 1986 when there was a great deal of debate about whether Gorbachev was really a reformer or not and what direction he intended to go inside the Soviet Union. And over the next 20 years, a lot of things changed in a very big way. And a lot of the conventional wisdom, the things that people thought they knew about the world and how it operated, what was possible and what wasn't, actually proved erroneous. And so what this taught me as an analyst was how important it is to think about the ways things could unfold that aren't what people expect and to be sensitive to how little things can turn into big changes. That's happened over and over again over the course of my career on a lot of different issues. And it has made me quite sensitive to the importance of thinking about alternatives to conventional wisdom. Did you have any notion in 86 that the whole system could collapse by 91? Absolutely not. And almost no one that I knew in or out of government had that kind of belief either. It took an awful lot of people by surprise. And looking backwards, how much of it do you think was... Gorbachev, and how much of it was just that the system was decaying beyond the ability to sustain itself? Well, I think it was a combination of both. Gorbachev, I think, obviously proved to be a genuine reformer. That early debate that we had over that resolved itself pretty quickly. But Gorbachev, I think, underestimated the forces of nationalism inside the Soviet Union and what kind of effect they could have. And I think he made some fundamental errors in understanding his own power base inside the country, how effective he could be in trying to outmaneuver the Communist Party. Over time, he felt that the anti-reform elements in the Communist Party could be outflanked and that he could build up the Russian state, the non-communist government parts of that system, and use that as his base for ruling and overcome opposition to reform in the party. What he didn't understand was that there really was nothing there <laughs> inside that apparatus outside the party. So he put his chips on something that was really not substantial, and he paid an enormous price for that. I was very struck that the system had become so endlessly corrupt that if you led an anti-corruption campaign, the whole system just froze up. It didn't know what to do anymore. And it was an extraordinary period, and I agree with you, it was virtually unpredictable how fast it occurred and how many different pieces of it occurred that no one of which could have been predicted, which in a sense is a useful reminder when you think about the future that if we weren't all that clever in the late 80s, Maybe we're not all that clever right now. And I know you've written a book back in 2019, The Russia Trap, How Our Shadow War with Russia Could Spiral into Nuclear Catastrophe, which is one of the things, frankly, I worry about a lot. And one reason I really wanted you to come and spend some time with us. And you basically warned that if we're going to avoid a catastrophic 
and mutually destructive war, that we've got to find some method to compromise. Talk just for a couple minutes about the notion that what could happen, much like what happened in 1914 in particular, and to a lesser extent in 39 to 41, the system just gets tighter and tighter and tighter and more and more hostile, and there are fewer and fewer options. And then suddenly one morning you find yourself, by the force of logic, doing something which is totally irrational. That's essentially what happened in the run-up to World War I. There were a variety of factors that came together and reinforced one another and put Europe on a path toward a catastrophic collision that toward the end, it no longer had real options to get out of. And I frankly worry that that's the situation that we're in right now with Russia. And Putin's options are narrowing. He is increasingly forced to escalate. He's got a choice between doubling down, mobilizing Russia for all-out war, and humiliation, conceding that this was all a giant mistake and that NATO is going to expand into Ukraine. And Russia, from his perspective, is then on a path toward not just irrelevancy, but perhaps even internal breakup. And one of the things that Americans, I think, don't appreciate when we hear that the Russians are concerned that the United States is out for Russia's demise, that we're trying to break up the country and circle it militarily, we think, oh, this is just all a bunch of nonsense. They're paranoid. Well, they actually went through the breakup of their country, many of them, you know, a generation or less ago in the Soviet Union. So they are not at all complacent about how stable that situation is. And the United States obviously celebrated the Soviet Union's breakup. We regarded this as a great triumph. And many Americans today think that Russia itself is a country that should be defeated and should be broken up. There was an article in The Atlantic not too long ago calling for Russia's internal decolonization, as they put it. And the Russians look at things like this and think that, in fact, this is indicative of American intentions, that we are attempting to eliminate Russia as a great power. And the Russians, of course, think of themselves not just as a country that should be a great power. They think that Russia can't survive unless it is which again is something that Americans have a hard time understanding. But the Russians don't think they have the option of being a Sweden, a country that was once a great military power and decided it was going to become a country that provided a great standard of living for its people instead. The Russians think they're just too vast a country, too geographically vulnerable to invasion, too surrounded by hostile countries that they have to be a great power to protect themselves against the intentions of others. So this is a mentality that is hard for Americans to understand. We have a much different geographic situation, a much different history than the Russians do. But for them, these are very real fears. And I think we're in a situation right now where the Russians believe that they fight or they die, that this is an existential battle for them, 
not so much focused against Ukraine, but being played out in Ukraine between the United States and Russia. That this is a war of Russia fighting against what they call the collective West. They have a much different perspective on this than most Americans do. talk a little bit about the notion that we've been involved in a shadow war. I've been intrigued because, frankly, I would have guessed that Biden would have been more cautious and more disinclined to use power than he has been. I mean, you have to say in Ukraine that Biden has pretty well stepped up to the plate in a way that I would not have predicted, frankly. But I think it's part of sort of where we are as a bureaucratic national security system in dealing with Russia right now. But describe just briefly, because I think it's a very useful distinction between a hot war like we had with Japan or Germany and a cold war like we had with the Soviet Union. There's this, and it actually fits the Russian model of hybrid warfare. So that we're fighting sort of a shadow conflict where we're dancing with each other in ways that are dangerous. Can you describe how you got to the concept of shadow war and what it means to you? Well, I was trying to come up with a term that describes something in between what was going on in the Cold War and an actual traditional hot war, like with Nazi Germany or Japan in World War II. And the Russian concept of hybrid war really is a derivative of what they think the United States has been doing to Russia. <laughs> it didn't originate with the Russians. The Russians actually adopted it based on what they saw or thought they saw us doing. So it's a combination of high technology. There's a lot going on in the cyber world, sabotage and subterfuge and efforts to try to influence internal politics through the internet and digital communications. So that's been going on at a very high level for many years now. Part of this is economic warfare, and the United States is quite good at that. We have enormous resources to draw on in financial statecraft. And the Russians believe this has been going on for quite some time, and that the ultimate aim of this is not to change Russian behavior, but to change Russia itself, which they find quite alarming. And there's also an awful lot of sparring that has been going on between U.S. and Russian military forces in a number of domains. Part of this is going on in space, which is an increasingly important domain in warfare. Part of it's going on at sea and in the air with intelligence collection flights that have been going on, testing of sea and air defenses that both sides have been engaged in. So the Russians see the purpose of this as war by other means that these are coercive efforts carried out in these unconventional ways that have an aim of changing Russia's internal politics in some way, bringing about regime change, weakening Russia to the point where it can't function effectively in the world. So I summarized all that with the term shadow warfare. Right now, we're moving past shadow warfare into proxy warfare. We're nudging right up to the edge of an openly declared hot war between the United States and Russia. Let me ask one question that you sort of triggered. Do you think that from a 
Russian perspective, the notion of Russia evolving into a relatively open liberal democracy with the rule of law would actually be a defeat because it would have ended Russia as the historic authoritarian culture it had always been? A defeat for Russia? Yes. That what we think of as the natural outcome of evolution, they would regard as a replacement of their culture and their system. Well, I think some Russians would, far from all. I think a lot of Russians would embrace that kind of outcome. The difficulty with that is, how do you get there? And that's the difficulty that we encountered quite directly in the 1990s, when I think both the United States and a lot of Russian liberal reformers had very good intentions. There was a great deal of hope that Russia could transform relatively quickly into a liberal Western-style market-oriented democracy. And obviously, in retrospect, it didn't work out that way. But I think what this did on the part of a lot of Russians was to believe that the United States didn't actually want to see Russia succeed and thrive, that this was all a plot on our part to weaken and break up Russia. After all, we're the world's most powerful country. If we were up to our eyes in involvement in Russia's internal politics during that period, and it turned out to be such a mess, then obviously that's because we wanted it to turn into such a mess. And the notion that the United States didn't actually know what it was doing, it didn't actually know how you orchestrate the transformation of a country like that into a capitalist democracy didn't occur to a lot of people in Russia. And unfortunately, I think that's the most likely explanation that transforming a country like that is an extremely difficult thing to do, particularly from the outside, particularly by people that don't understand the culture and the history and all the connections that are there. And, and this is something that I think a lot of conservatives in the United States have a strange position on. You know, we tend to believe that social engineering by the federal government tends to result in disaster. And I think there's good reason for believing that. But suddenly we're going to go overseas and engage in massive social engineering efforts in countries that we don't understand nearly as well as our own, and we somehow think they're going to succeed. And I think we have good reason for being far more humble about that than we have been. As the grinding war with Ukraine continues, how concerned are you that we could drift into sort of tactical engagement between Russian and American forces? Well, I'm quite concerned. I think the Biden administration has been to this point, quite cautious about not wanting to get directly involved in all of this. Biden has repeatedly said that he does not want World War III, and rightly so. But when you're in an escalation spiral, which I think we are in with the Russians, there's a temptation on the part of both sides to believe that this next step up the escalatory ladder will cause the other side to sober up. They'll realize they can't win, They'll realize that it's just getting too dangerous, and they'll sue for peace, essentially. And that has happened on both sides at every stage in this war so far. The Biden administration started out early this year by saying to the Russians, hey, if you follow through and you actually invade Ukraine, 
you're going to get sanctions like you've never imagined. And we're going to make counter moves in the West that will bring about a situation that you want to avoid. So don't do it. Well, what happened? Putin actually followed through on the invasion. Then we escalated, then he escalated again. Then we had the Ukrainian counteroffensive. And what happened? Putin is escalating right now. And I think what's going to come next is we're going to see much more serious, widespread and destructive Russian bombing, missile, artillery, rocket attacks that are going to go after Ukrainian infrastructure. They're going to go after cities, what the Russians call decision-making centers in Ukraine. And that's going to cause a great deal of outrage in the West, justifiably so. Washington is going to look at this and the typical Washington response to these sorts of things is to do something. We can't just sit there and tolerate this. We have to do something. So I think the pressure is going to build in Washington to provide the Ukrainians with the wherewithal to respond, to retaliate in kind on Russian infrastructure, on Russian decision-making centers. And then what's going to happen? The Russians are going to sober up and back off? I don't think so. I think they're going to escalate again. So the only way you get out of these kinds of spirals is to talk, to find a compromise way out of this. But I don't see any appetite right now. First in Ukraine, which Zelensky is being quite clear that he believes the only way out of this war is Russia's complete defeat. But Washington doesn't seem to be pursuing any kind of talks at this point. And the Russians, I think, although they are saying they're open to talks, have almost given up hope that anybody on the other side wants to engage. So we're on, a, I think, a very dangerous course right now. I think that's probably an accurate description of what's happening. I've, I've always been concerned from the time we added Estonia, Latvia, and Lithuania to NATO because Estonia is basically an exurb of St. Petersburg. And, of course, now adding Finland and Sweden will increase the Russian sense of encirclement. I think this is a very, very dangerous period. George, I want to thank you for joining me and helping us understand more about what is happening with Putin's Russia and the conflict with Ukraine and the dangers we all face. And I want to let our listeners know we'll have a link to your book, The Russia Trap, How Our Shadow War with Russia Could Spiral into Nuclear Catastrophe, on our show page at newtsworld.com. Thank you very, very much. Thank you. Thank you to my guest, George Beebe. You can learn more about Russia's invasion of Ukraine at newtsworld.com. Newt's World is produced by Gingrich 360 and iHeartMedia. Our executive producer is Garnsey Sloan. Our producer is Rebecca Howell, and our researcher is Rachel Peterson. The artwork for the show was created by Steve Penley. Special thanks to the team at Gingrich 360. If you've been enjoying Newt's World, I hope you'll go to Apple Podcasts and both rate us with five stars and give us a review so others can learn what it's all about. Right now, listeners of Newt's World can sign up for my three free weekly columns at Gingrich360.com newsletter. I'm Newt Gingrich. This is Newt's World.